0: We will pray that that echo, at least that I'm hearing, <laughs> goes away <laughs> as we get used to this new space. Father in heaven, we come now uh, to the scripture and we pray that you'll help us uh, to hear, to believe. that uh, This word would literally transform our lives. Father, that's a great, huge request, way bigger than Obviously, I am. Certainly, nothing I say, nothing we think can transform our lives. Only your word informing what we say, informing what we think. And so I pray that your word would have um, great power today uh, to work in us and to transform our lives. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn, please, to First Timothy in chapter 4. First Timothy in chapter 4, please, I want to read verses 6 through 10. <clears throat> Hear the word of God. Verse 6. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths rather train yourselves for godliness for while bodily training is of some value godliness is of, some, is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance for to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope sets on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Now we've been mentioning as we've come to this letter, First Timothy, over and over again its purpose, and that is to teach Timothy and thus the church in Ephesus, thus us, how we're to behave as the church. But there's one point that we keep coming back to because it lays the groundwork, the foundation for everything the apostle is saying here, and that is that the church is a pillar. And support of the truth. That comes from verse 15 in chapter 3 that the church is a pillar and support of the truth. Now we need to realize how counter-cultural that expression was then and is now. Countercultural then, because to think even then that any one group of people would have the truth was astounding. People in those days outside of Israel worshipped all kinds of gods, except gods accepted, were tolerant of the worship of, of many, many gods. Uh, so it was counter-cultural then to say there is one truth that applies to all people at all times, a truth that transcends the culture, a truth that transcends a generation, a truth that sen- transcends even a race or a nation of people. And so we're to be a pillar in support of that truth. Even now, and perhaps even more, that statement is countercultural that is to say that people don't have a category in their brains in these days, that there would be one truth that transcends generations, transcends culture, transcends race, transcends status, transcends everything, That, that there is one truth that is true for all people in all times. But the apostle says to the church that this truth has been given to you, given to us as the church. Now, That statement may sound incredibly arrogant for anyone to say that we, as the church, have the truth. Now let me tell you why it isn't arrogant to say that. It isn't arrogant because that truth did not originate from us or with us. It was given to us. In other words, we didn't think it up. In fact... That truth preceded us, that is to say, it preceded the church. In fact, it's that truth which called the church into existence. That gospel existed before, if you will, the church in a sense, in any institutional sense for sure, uh, was formed. In fact, it's that gospel that formed us, that gospel that made us as the body of Christ. And not only that, is it this truth isn't to be kept by the church. It isn't for us to be a little club that we have this truth and therefore everything is well with us. And so everybody out, we're in because we have this truth. This truth is to be proclaimed to everybody. This gospel is for all, in fact. It's says of itself that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And we're to take this gospel everywhere. It's to be for all people, to be a blessing for all people. So it isn't just for us as the church. It isn't just for us as some special group. It isn't just for us because of our status or education or, or any of that. It's for the whole world. And we're simply stewards of it. And now we're to take it for, to, everyone. So in that sense, it isn't an arrogant statement. It didn't begin with us. It was given to us. It made us. And we're not even to keep it. It's to be spread everywhere so that all who call on the name of the Lord through it will be saved. But but, but having this truth, keeping it, and keeping it pure, that's a call for us. We're to guard it. We're to protect it. And obviously to proclaim it, but certainly to guard and protect it. In fact, Paul has mentioned throughout this letter, we saw this last Sunday, that there will be those who come to change the truth, to dilute it, to add to it. And Paul says that everyone who, who, who comes to change this truth is diabolical, that is, of the devil. He says that everyone who comes to change this truth and teaches that which is false concerning Christ, is a hypocritical liar. That is, whether the person knows it or not, anyone who teaches anything false, anything that's against this gospel of Christ, anything that's, that's not this truth concerning Christ, really is hypocritical. That is, living a lie, and that is, a person who's a liar, who's also speaking, that lie and anyone who believes that lie is believing the teachings of demons now what makes that difficult for us to really get our heads around is that those who teach a false gospel or those who believe that which isn't true are oftentimes very nice people they're not three headed monsters they're very nice people And they're very sincere as well very often with a great desire to help. But the most dangerous are those who are very helpful and very nice and yet doing all of that without Christ. That's this sense of moralism. The Christianity is just doing the right thing. Well, it, it isn't that. It's this sense that we can't do the right thing, haven't done the right thing, can't even think up the right thing. But Christ has come so that for those of us who believe and realize that we haven't done the right thing, we've offended God, then he's taken the penalty of our sin, the just penalty of our sin upon himself, and he's lived righteously so his goodness can be given to us, his righteousness can be, as we say, imputed or counted to us. That's what it means to be a Christian, one who believes that, not who just simply does the right thing. And so you see, what makes this, when we read Paul, and he's saying the source of this false teaching is Satan himself, and the people who teach it are hypocritical liars, and the people who believe it are really believing that which is teaching of demons and from demons. We go, whoa, but I know these people. They don't seem like that at all. And he says, I know they don't seem that way, and and be nice to them. But, But this is where it's coming from. It's, as we would put it, diabolical. He says, listen, church, you have this truth. You're to protect it. You're to guard it. You're to proclaim it. There's one other thing about this truth that's to work in you. And that is that this truth is to work godliness in you. Uh, Paul writes not only to Timothy, who was a pastor in Ephesus, but another young pastor named Titus, who was a pastor in a city called Crete. And, And as Paul writes to Titus, and we have it here in Titus chapter 1, verse 1, He says this, Paul, he's introducing himself, obviously, in his letter. He says, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in some versions it says, which leads to godliness. In other words, he says, listen, you have this truth, and it's consistent with godliness. In fact, you have this truth, and it leads to godliness. So you see, you have this truth, not only to protect it, not only to proclaim it, but to to take it in in such a way that it works in you godliness. In fact, in this same letter, chapter 2, verse 11, Paul writes this. He writes, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify himself for himself a people for his own possession, who is zealous for good works. In other words, he says, listen, this truth is to come. It's to lead the lead to godliness in such a way that it produces out of you, those of you who have this truth, the church, these good works works as he would put it in fact in chapter 3 of this same letter and um, uh, verse 8 it says this saying is trustworthy and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God that has taken this truth and believed it, believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works and then Peter puts it like this in Second Peter Uh, In chapter 1, verse 3, Peter writes, His divine power, that is God's divine power, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So he says, listen, the very power of God has come in such a way to um, uh, give to us everything that pertains to life and godliness. And this comes through the knowledge of him who called us his own glory and excellence he says listen you have everything that you need for life you have everything that you need for godliness and this comes through the very power of God and this power of God comes through this knowledge of God that you have in other words if you have this knowledge of God then you have all that you need to live life and to be godly and so Paul says to us, church, you have this truth. You're a pillar in support of the truth. Yes, to guard it. Yes, to proclaim it. And yes, also, since you have it, it's to live in you in such a way that it produces godly people, godly followers of Christ. That's really a redundant phrase, but we can use it anyway, godly Followers of Christ. So the question then is what is this godliness? Paul says in the passage that we read, he says, rather, verse 7, at the middle of verse 7, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. Where we could say godliness is of value for everything. And he says, as it holds promise for the present life that is right now, but also, he puts it, for the life for the life to come. And he's speaking really to Timothy first and then to us second. He's speaking to Timothy as a, as a, as a pastor of this church. And he says, Timothy, what the church needs is your godliness. He doesn't give Timothy as the pastor of the church a plan, how can you grow the church, seven ways to grow your church. He doesn't give him a, 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 you know, a seminar on how to do administration. He doesn't give him all of these little things that are valuable, no doubt, and good things for pastors of churches to talk about. I trust even then they talked about some of these things. How do we, how do, we do all this? But he says, listen, Timothy, what's most important for you as the pastor of the church, what's most important for the church from you is that you're godly quoted before an old dead Scotsman named Robert Murray McShane who asked a question to a group of pastors and he said this was about in the 17th, 18th, 18th century and he said to them what is your people's or your churches, your congregation's greatest need of you? And after the great discussion took place of all kinds of things listed he simply said, very personally and autobiographically, he said, my people's greatest need is my personal holiness. And that is true. And that's true for all of us. If you're a husband, your wife's greatest need is your personal holiness. If you're a wife, your husband's greatest need is your personal holiness. If you're an employee, your employer's greatest need is your personal holiness. You see, you can take this in every direction. Because this holiness, this this godliness, is profitable in every area, in every circumstance of life. Because you see, it's, it's more this godliness. It's more than just Christ-like character. It's not less than that. We think of godliness, we think of being like God, being like Christ, godly, Christly, if you will. That's the way we ought to be, as opposed to worldly, that is, like the world. And so we want to be like God, want to be like Christ, have that character in us. And, of course, the Scripture speaks of of that over and over again. For instance, in Romans in chapter 8, when God speaks that great word to us about working everything together for good, what's the good that he's working everything together for? Notice how he puts it in verse 28 of Romans chapter 8. He says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together um, for good. For those who are called according to his purpose... For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. You see, that's the good that God is doing through everything that takes place in the world of the life of a believer, a follower of Christ. Everything will produce good. And the good that's produced is he's conforming us To the image of Jesus. You see, we're created in the image of God. Jesus is the perfect manifestation of the image of God. And he says what you're going to be ultimately is like him. And so everything, understand church, everything as a believer in Christ is working in such a way to conform you to that Christ-likeness, that very character of Christ. In fact, when Paul writes to the church in Galatia, he says two things, one which is very familiar to us, the other not so much, but it leads in in Galatians in chapter four and verse seventeen, Paul or verse nineteen, Paul says this to them. He says, "My little children, children, for whom I am again in anguish of childbirth, until Christ is formed in you." So if you would have asked Paul what he wanted for the believers in Galatia. He would say, I'm praying, and my prayer is so is, is as earnest, if you will, as a woman giving birth to a child. And that earnestness, what I'm giving birth to, I trust, is that Christ be born in this group of people, corporately and individually, and manifest his presence among them, that Christ be formed in them, meaning that they be like Christ have that kind of character and then he goes on in what is very well known to us to speak of what he calls the fruit of that which is the fruit of the Holy Spirit and he said here are those characteristics that Christ likeness that I'm praying is formed in you and he says the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience kindness goodness faithfulness gentleness self control and so forth these Christ like characters and all that is true and all that is important for us to be But when we talk of godliness, there's something broader than that. It's not less than that, but it's more than that. Because it not only includes that activity of obedience and being like Christ, if you will, acting like Christ. But it also includes the heart of the matter. That is, godliness is not only the activity, but the attitude. Godliness is not only activity of doing that which is right and that is which is like Christ, but it's having the very attitude that leads to that, the very heart that leads to that. A friend, uh, Jerry Bridges, wrote a book called The Practice of Godliness. I'd recommend it to you. The Practice of Godliness. And in it he says that godliness is the devotion to God that leads to this Christ-like character. But it begins as a devotion to God that is a loyalty, a zeal, a commitment, a consuming, as he would put it, consuming passion for God. This sense of godliness. William Law in 1729 <laughs> wrote a book called A Serious Call to a Devout and Holy Life. A Serious Call to a Devout and Holy Life. I would recommend this book to you as well. It will eat your lunch. He writes this. And I say that after he had eaten mine on various occasions, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Um, He writes this. The devout or godly man, woman as well, remember 18th century. The devout or godly man, therefore, is one who lives no longer to his own will or to the will of God. I'm sorry, but solely to the will of God. Lives no longer to his own will or to the way and spirit of the world, but solely to the will of God. He considers God in everything and he serves God in everything. He makes every aspect of his common life into an aspect of piety by doing everything in the name of God and to his glory. In other words, he says this godliness is in fact this devotion to God where your whole thinking, your whole desire of your life, your commitment is to him. What would please him? What would honor him? That's the motivating force in your own life. Now, in the book, The Practice of Godliness, Jerry lays out like this. He says this devotedness to God is based upon or sourced or grounded in three different aspects, three different elements. That is, in order to really be devoted to God, to to have him as the focus of your thoughts, the focus of your desires, the focus of your will, the focus of your life, says these three elements must be there. One... There must be a fear of God. Number two, there must be a deep and abiding sense of the great love of God for us. And we must be gripped by that. And then thirdly, those two then lead into this devotion for God, this desire to live and to be in His very presence this desire to know him above all things. Now we talk about this fear of God, of course. We aren't saying that we should live in anxious dread, that kind of being afraid of God. No, there's always a tension with God. Because he's God. And there's always a sense on the one hand, of familiarity with him as believers, but always also this sense of, of, of he's God. The apostle Peter speaks of this when he says that we should live in some sense of reverent fear. Um, but remember, he's God. The author of Hebrews says, yes, we have this reverent fear of him, but, but, but remember, he's a consuming fire. And so there is this tension there between this anxious dread and, and this familiarity with him. But, but but when Jerry and when the scripture speaks of the fear of God in the life of one who's a believer it isn't this anxious dread because that's been taken away by the work of Christ by the death of Christ and so now we can enter into his presence with confidence knowing that he's not going to cast us out knowing that we're no longer under his wrath and that because of the work of Christ but, but this sense of, of reverence before him to realize that he is God and we are not. And when we begin to Take that in of who he really is in all of his majesty and all of his glory. It's no wonder that the Proverbs says that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. What does that mean? It means when we really get who God is, then we come to him for everything that's wise. Once we get who God is, that he's the creator of all that is, that he's the one who defines us, that he's the one who gives life, and all of that, once we get that about God, who else would we go to to help us with life? Who else would we go to to help define who we are? Who else would we go to um, to direct our lives other than God? That's the fear of God. That's revering him. That's honoring him as God, saying, you're God, so I'm going to sit at your feet. I'm going to bow before you. I'm going to commit and submit everything of my life to you. That's wise. And that means that you get who God is. John Murray, a theologian of another generation, put it like this. He said, the fear of the Lord is the soul of godliness. Because once we get who God is, then we have this fear, this reverent awe of who he is. And that leads ultimately to obedience. Because you see, we worship That which we fear. And we obey that which we worship. If you're afraid of the dark, even in that sense of anxious dread, do you realize there's a sense in which you've elevated darkness to a God in your life? That you worship, you fear, and you ultimately obey. If there's a dark space, you won't go there. If you're afraid of water... You've elevated water to such a degree that you said, it's going to dictate my life. If there's water there, I'm not going. Right? What you fear, you see, what we hold in awe, what we revere, we worship. And when we worship, we ultimately then obey. Some hold success in great fear. Oh, awe. Say, oh, that's it. Success. And we elevate success To a place of worship. That which we fear success. We worship. That which we worship. We obey therefore. That desire for success. Dictates how we live our lives. You just fill in whatever idol you want in there. and Whatever we fear. Whatever we revere. Whatever we honor. We worship whatever we worship. Then we obey. And the point of devotion is to say, that, that is to be God. So we need to come to a place where God is the one whom we fear, the one we honor, the one that we worship, therefore thus, then to obey him. And, and, and then Jerry goes on to say this. He says, listen, in order to really be devoted to God, not only do you have to, to fear him so that you know that he should be the focus of your whole life, but, but also that you need to come to grips with his love for us. Because when we see the very love of God in the cross of Jesus, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and gave his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Once we get that, once we see that in the gospel, what we're really seeing then is the majesty of God. We're seeing the power of God and we're seeing in great depth the holiness of God and his love right there on the cross. We see his holiness because he can't abide sin, and so he deals with it. And we see his love because he can't abide to see sinners whom he loves be condemned forever. And so therefore, on the cross, we see this great love of God where he takes the penalty for our sin upon himself. So moved by that was the Apostle Paul that he wrote this in Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. He writes, For the love of Christ controls us, Because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was was raised. He says this love of God controls us, compels us, grabs us, captivates us in such a degree that once we get that, how could you follow another? How could you trust another? How could you love another? How could you worship another? How could you be devoted to another? That's a question I ask myself every day. Christ has died for me. Look at who God is in that. Why would I ever follow another? I usually ask myself that right after I've sinned. Why did I do that? don't I fear him? Don't I know this grip of love? Am I not gripped by it? And the end result then is this devotion that we have for him. Jerry Bridges puts it like this, he says, so we see that devotion to God begins with the fear of God, with a biblical view of the majesty and holiness that elicits a reverence and awe of him. And then we see that the fear of God leads naturally to an apprehension of the love of God for us, as shown in the atoning death of Jesus, and as we contemplate God more and more in his majesty, holiness, and love, will be progressively led to the apex of our devotion, the desire for God himself to say that no one other than God can satisfy us. The psalmist over and over again poetically put it. The Apostle Paul, who had been a murderer of Christians, came to that very place in his own life. Listen to how he puts it in Philippians in chapter 3. In verse 8 he said, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Jesus Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And here he says all of that for this point, verse 10, that I may know him. He says there's nothing that can satisfy me other than knowing him. I must know him. Look at who he is. Why would he not be the object, the focus of my very life? That's this devotion. This devotion leads then, if you will, to worship this worship then leads to obedience. Now Paul says, you need to train yourself in this godliness Again, first Timothy in chapter four and verse uh, verse eight verse seven, rather train yourself for godliness listen he says, train yourself. So he says it's your responsibility. Take it up. Now, he says, that doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit isn't involved with this. Of course, the Holy Spirit's involved with this. But you make sure you're aware of this. You make sure you train yourself. You do everything that you possibly can to be trained in such a way that you're devoted to God so that you are a godly person. He said, this should be the focus of your life. Train yourself for that. And this little word train comes, in fact, as you can tell from this passage, uh, the world of athletics. In Ephesus, where Timothy was a pastor, um, athletics was everything. The young men in that community trained ceaselessly for what they called the games so everyone would know, Paul would know, everybody in Ephesus would know what that meant to them. It meant that it was their obsession. It means that it was their passion. It means that it was their commitment. It means that they sacrificed everything so they could be prepared for these games. And Paul says, that's fine. That has some value, but very limited value. Godliness, on the other hand, has value in every single way. I always like to tell young kids, don't let your parents sell out your godliness for sports. Don't let your training in sports be such a degree that it takes up all your time so that there's no training for godliness because then all you'll have is something that's valuable for a little while. But you see, if you don't let that happen, kids, then if you're trained for godliness... And that godliness will help you in everything, even your sports. Because, you see, then you'll know how to deal with success. And then you'll know how to deal with failure. And then you'll know how to prioritize your life. But if you don't have that godliness, then whatever else you're being trained for and by will completely take over your life. That's true in everything. We spend a great deal of time in our community training for future work, for professions... For jobs and all of that. And that's wonderful. We need that training. But you see, if we're not trained in godliness, we'll never have any idea how to use that training so that it really profits anything or anyone. But you see, if we're trained in godliness, it then has value in the present life, as the apostle says, and even in the life to come, because you see, this is simply preparation for that. And there is one thing that we take in, with us, and that is this godliness that's developed even in us now. There's something about the the continuity, Paul says, between this life and that life, this sense of godliness. It's good for now and it's good for then too. It's a value then, you see. So he says, train yourself for godliness. Be focused, be committed. This should be the focus of your very life, our very lives, all of our lives, to know God, to come to a place, he says, to fear him come to a place of really being gripped by his love so you're compelled by it, so you see who he really is and then realize that no one else, nothing else can satisfy other than following him and realize that there is no wisdom apart from him, and there is no grace apart from him, there is no anything apart from him. And so we devote ourselves to him. He says, now train yourself for that, be committed to that. So the question then is how do we do that? How are we trained for this? kind of godliness so that regardless of whatever situation we're in that we're compelled to follow christ that's if you will the very instinct of our lives coaches speak often of something called muscle memorization and they say if you train yourself enough to throw a curveball, if you train yourself enough to shoot a basketball, you train yourself enough to kick a football, that your muscles over time, over that repetition, get it and they understand. And and so they respond in the same way or similar way each time you go to do that. After a while, if you're well trained, because you've done it so much, it's been the focus of your attention over and over and over again. Musicians know that they understand that their muscles and minds must work together in a particular way in order to make these sounds happen. And so over and over and over again, it's repetition. And so the apostle says in a very similar way, be that focused, have times of training so that when you're in certain situations, in various situations, then you respond rightly and for the right reason. You just don't respond rightly because you have pride and you're afraid to respond the wrong way. And so you respond the right way until, of course, no one's watching. But no, genuinely inside from the very guts of your life, you're responding rightly in those circumstances and in those situations. Now, we all know, any of us who've been doing this for any length of time, that this is a lifelong pursuit. This isn't like we go off to to, to boot camp or, or some sort of training for six weeks and when we get back, we've got it down. And our muscles are memorized. as memorized everything and we'll never make a mistake again. This is OJT. This is on-the-job training. This is while we're playing the game. And this is in the midst of it as well. But he says, make sure that you're trained in the midst of this. And so we must, as believers in Christ, have our minds so focused upon God and take time in order to do this. It isn't a monastic life. It isn't that we separate ourselves from life so that we can get it all down. But there is training that takes place. And here's how it begins. 2 Corinthians and chapter 3 and verse 18. Second Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18. Now the context here, almost done, context here is that Paul is talking about a situation where Moses had gone into the very presence of God and it transformed his life it transformed his life being in the very presence of God so much so that you could actually see it on his face. He radiated at least for a while. After a while it kind of dimmed and you know, Moses just became Moses after that. But, but, but for some time after Moses was in the presence of God you could see the effect of being in the presence of God. You could see the effect that it had on his life. Now Paul would know that really well. Because what transformed Paul's life was that opening moment being in the very presence of Jesus. It knocked him right off his horse. It blinded him to everything else. He couldn't see anything. All he could know is Jesus. And so Paul would say, yes, I, I get it, I understand. If there's a way we can be in the very presence of Christ, that transforms, that draws, that, 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 that focuses our, our minds and hearts right upon him. And so notice how he puts it then in verse 18 of Second Corinthians in chapter 3. He says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. This training, you see, to be completely devoted to Christ, completely devoted to God, begins and continues as we behold The glory of the Lord. That's the training. The training is beholding the glory of Christ. And it's beholding the glory of Christ in such a way that after a while, by beholding, we reflect. Paul uses a very interesting word for behold. It's a word that has two sides to it. If you have a a Bible with little marginal notes or whatever, it will also say reflecting. In fact, some versions don't use the word beholding first. They use it as a marginal note and said it could also mean behold. And so he says that that we are transformed uh, not only by beholding but by reflecting either way. But really the point is this. If we behold, we reflect. And so we behold in such a way that we see the glory of the Lord and we're drawn to him. He's the very focus of our life so that we reflect. His glory. So once we know Him, then you see, we're able to obey Him, to reflect Him. How do you do that? How do you behold the glory of the Lord? You know the list. There's no magic to this. There's no great, deep, profound anything here. You all could finish my sermon. So I won't more than give you the list the question is are we going to do it the question is are we going to take upon ourselves this training the list is this that we see the glory of Christ in the scripture and so we read it we don't read it we don't see the glory of Christ we don't see the glory of Christ we don't behold him, we don't behold him, we don't reflect him And so we read it. We study. That's why we do Bible studies all the time around here. That's why we talk to you about reading through the Scripture. That's why we we preach the way that we do. The way we have Sunday school classes. All of that. Because, you see, we must behold the glory of the Lord. And he is revealed to us in the Scripture. And so, so we behold it. We think through even the Gospel. And there we see the glory of God in the face of our Lord Jesus Christ. We see the majesty of Christ. We see the justice of God. We see his holiness. And we see the very love of God. And so in this, and we see it too, this beholding the glory of the Lord as we bow to pray. Because you see, that's out of fear of the Lord and and out of being gripped by his love. We know that he's going to hear us because he loves us. And we know that he loves us because of what Christ has done. And and thus we revere and, and fear him, if you will. We honor him. And so we bow and say, help me, teach me. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We bow to pray. And so we spend time beholding him even as we make our requests. We know it too in the context of worship. God has given to us, as we've said over and over again, lives of a cycle, of a seven-day cycle, if you will. And he says, one day out of seven, you need to stop and gaze upon me. That's what worship is to be. Worship, as we gather together every Sunday, is to be a stopping and a gazing upon God. beholding Him. At the end of the day, you know me, I don't ever, I'm not here to give you lists, I'm giving you a list today, but you notice I'm not numbering them, so you can put them in any order you want. Uh, Any lists of do this, do that, do this, do that. No, no, no. What what we want at the end of a worship service is to have beheld, if you will, seen in some sense God through Jesus. That's what will last. When I was young in my marriage, I would go to marriage conferences. Now, marriage conferences are great. Men go to them. But I never liked them. That's not much of an endorsement, is it? But go anyway. But, but here's why. I like some of them. They're the kind that I do, do this. Because I like this. But, but what I didn't like is that it, I would leave thinking what a rotten husband I am. Because these people would tell me all the things I should have been doing. And you know they were right. But I went to one once where the conference speaker said, I want you to take 30 minutes and behold your wife. I want you to think about how great your wife is. I want you to think how wonderful she is. i would be honest with you, that 30 minutes transformed my life with my wife because I beheld her and I said, she's great. That's Increased my devotion. And when you're devoted, you see, you'll find ways. You'll find ways. You'll live it out. When it's the focus of your life, when it's the passion of your life, when it's the desire of your heart. So all of this, you see, is getting Christ to be the very desire of our heart. So we read of him. And we pray to him. And then we fellowship with each other because, you see, I see Christ in you as you reflect him. But when I'm in situations in your lives and difficulties, I see Christ all over the place. I say, oh, there he is again. I don't know how this person can be loving in that circumstance. That's Christ. I don't know how this, people can, this person can be faithful in that circumstance. That's Christ. I don't know how this person uh, can, 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 can be compassionate in this circumstance. That's Christ. I see it. You've beheld him. You reflect him. I see it. That helps me. And then, even as we step out to obey, you see, as we step out to obey, even Jesus says, When you follow me, when you obey my commandments, I'll manifest myself to you. John 14, verse 21, uh, John writes this Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. You see, the key to godliness. Is devotion. The key to devotion is beholding the glory of Christ. Enoch in the Old Testament, opening chapters of the Old Testament. Fascinating man. Very little about him. We know two things. One from Genesis one from Hebrews Genesis Enoch walked with God he was devoted to God his life was spent in the very presence of God the book of Hebrews writes of Enoch he pleased God Hmm. devotion character beholding obedience. We must train ourselves for godliness by beholding the glory of Christ. Let's pray, Father. Pray for me, for us, that we would be that. That you would enable us to behold Jesus. So I pray that you would reveal him to us. Every time we open the scripture, God, I pray that it's clear that we see him. I pray that every time we bow to make our prayers to you, that we are dependent upon him, we see him. And Father, I pray that when we're in fellowship together, that we see him. And I pray that when we worship, that that which comes from our worship is that we behold the glory of Christ and I pray that even as we obey, Lord Jesus, that you would come in such a way in our own obedience and life that we would see you, that you would indeed manifest yourself to us so that our whole lives are focused upon you. Father, I know that there are those among us who are in difficult straits, difficult circumstances, some facing surgery, some grieving, some facing unemployment or underemployment and financial needs, some in very difficult relationships, be they friendships or marriage or other family relationships, God, they're just deep and difficult. Some with struggles, even on this Mother's Day, just to know that it's a glorious day, but yet there are some who are deeply disturbed on this day because of the inability to be a mom or perhaps various guilt of life as a mom or whatever that may be. And so, God, we pray that the focus of our attention in every circumstance and every situation would be upon you, that our devotion would not be to our own pride or our own success or what other people think about us or even our own happiness in that sense, but be devoted to you. And that you, in fact, then, would take all things and work them in such a way that this good would come, our devotion to you, our being conformed to the image of Jesus. So this, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.